Start a new book today, 1 Thessalonians, and you can open your Bible there. There should be an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. You can grab one now or later if you like. Um, and uh, <clears throat> I'll be giving this message. It's kind of an introductory one. And then next Sunday, and then we're going to take a two-week vacation up to uh, southern southwest Colorado, and then, Lord willing, continue on the rest of the summer after that. Just going to cover the first two verses this morning. All of the messages, by the way, are on the church website, both with the um, printed and the audio messages. Paul and Silvanus, which is the same as Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. It's hard to know where to break that off. I would have liked to have gone further, but... um, just have so much time, so we'll stop right there. I am often haunted by the thought that if somehow our church ceased to exist this week, we were all taken out of the way, that we wouldn't be missed in this city. I think probably people would notice, hey, that building is empty. And uh, after a while, they'd probably say, I'll bet that'd make a cool coffee shop. And, uh, you know, we would have a coffee shop in here in this quaint old historic building. Uh, But I I don't know that they would think that much about our departure because I don't see, and I'm speaking personally here, not just for all of you, but I just don't see that I, we, have made a great impact to change the life of this city in any obvious way. I don't think that could be said about the Thessalonian church. Um, When that church began, some of the hostile opposition dragged some of the new believers before the city officials, and they laid this accusation, Acts 17.6, these men who have upset the world have come here Um, come here also. And that new church made such an impact that not only in that city, but also in the surrounding region, people began to report back to Paul the dramatic changes that had taken place in the lives of, of these people. Now, this isn't a perfect church. There's never been one, never will be until the Lord comes back. But It was the only church in the New Testament that Paul holds up as a positive example to other churches and says, look at these guys and what they are like. It had its start sometime about A.D. 49 or A.D. 50 in that range when Paul and his companion Silas, probably Timothy was with them, visited this city. It was about 200,000 people, so you know, roughly three times the size of Flagstaff. Uh, He and Silas had just been unjustly beaten and imprisoned in 
or thrown in jail in Philippi. And Philippi, as you may know, was the first um, church on European soil. Paul had had that vision when he was over there in Troas in Asia Minor. And the line between Asia and Europe is kind of right there in the Straits of Bosphorus where Istanbul currently is today. And um, the man in Macedonia said, come over and help us. So they went to Philippi. Uh, started a church there with a lot of opposition and and persecution. Um, the earthquake there got them freed from prison. The local city officials came and begged them to leave the city, which they did. And they went about um, 100 miles or so to the west to this major city of Thessalonica. It was the capital of one of four major districts in Macedonia, and it was a Roman colony that enjoyed local autonomy, and they were the most prosperous city in that region as well. Unlike Philippi, there were enough Jews in Thessalonica to warrant a synagogue, and so they had a synagogue. Paul, as you probably know, was a Pharisee, and uh, had been trained under famous rabbi Gamaliel. And so as a visiting rabbi, and they didn't maybe know his conversion story, they invited him to speak, which he did for three Sabbath days. Uh, Acts 17.3 says he was explaining and giving evidence that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, And saying, this Jesus whom I am proclaiming to you is the Christ. And as a result, some of the Jews were persuaded, along with many God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. Uh, We don't know exactly how long Paul stayed in Thessalonica. Some would say it could have been as short as a month, indicated by the three Sabbaths. But there may be other indications that he stayed longer, so... Perhaps the three Sabbaths just refers to a synagogue ministry. And um, there seemed to have been a lot of Gentiles in the church. So perhaps after that, he began to speak to the Gentiles in the city. Several things would indicate he stayed longer. One is, elsewhere, he refers to his working in his trade there, which would have required some time to kind of set up shop. Uh, He also received financial help from the Philippians more than once, so they would have had to send the money to him. He got it, um, and then again they sent money to him. Another factor is simply the depth of doctrinal teaching that we're going to encounter in 1st and 2nd Thessalonians uh, that he assumes they knew because he taught them would show he had been there longer than a month. And then, uh, furthermore, Paul had uh, appointed some men as leaders before he left. And so it could have been a few months that he was there. But after a while, out of jealousy, the Jews who opposed his message formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar. They attacked the house of this new believer named Jason, uh, thinking they'd find Paul and his associates there. They were somewhere else, so... They dragged Jason before the city magistrates, made that accusation about them uh, welcoming these world-upsetting strangers. 
And they claimed that Paul and his associates, Acts 17.7, acted contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying there's another king, Jesus. So they got the message pretty clear uh, that Jesus is Lord. And the officials responded rather restrained and calmly. They just took a pledge or a bond from Jason and uh, released him. To avoid further trouble, though, the church sent Paul and Barnabas away by night to Berea, which was a city about 50 miles to the west of Thessalonica. Paul found receptive hearts there in Berea, and uh, then some unbelieving Jews from Thessalonica came over there, stirred up opposition. So Paul uh, then put out to sea, and went south down to Athens, and uh, he left Silas and Timothy up in Berea for a while. They later joined him in Athens. Paul really wanted to return to Thessalonica, and we don't know what the hindrance was, but he reports that Satan more than once thwarted his going there. So we don't know what that was, but um, he sent Timothy back. And we don't know either, Acts is silent on this, but it would seem that Silas maybe was sent back up to Philippi to check on that church, and then later both men joined Paul after he had moved, well, they joined him in Athens, and then, um, or, or at least, I guess they joined him after he had moved from Athens to Corinth. They got back together with him, the three of them. And then Timothy brought back good news, how the church in Thessalonica was doing okay. There were some concerns, though, which prompted Paul to write the letter we're going to study. It was probably written about six months to a year after Paul had been there, and uh, then 2 Thessalonians was written a few months later. Probably, as I said, the church had grown more among the Gentile population because down in verse 9 of chapter 1, he mentions how they turned to God from idols. That wouldn't refer to the Jewish segment of the church, but the Gentile. Paul expresses his heartfelt thanks for this congregation, uh, for their conversion. But Timothy had reported that some of the Jews were attacking Paul's character They were accusing him of not caring, saying if he really cared, he would have come back and visited you, that kind of thing. And so a large part of the letter, he is defending his motives, defending his methods, showing them that his heart was for these people and that those accusations were not true. Also, the Thessalonians were experiencing some pretty intense persecution and, of course, as new believers, Paul was concerned that maybe they, under the pressure they would cave or compromise. And so he writes to them about that. Timothy had reported to Paul also some concerns that the Thessalonians were confused about the Lord's second coming. Uh, some of the members apparently said, well, if the Lord's coming, why work? So they quit working and were sponging off others. And we'll see that especially when we get to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, but it's implicit also here. Others were grieving excessively because some of their loved ones had died, and they weren't sure, well, are they going to miss what happens when Christ returns? 
And so Paul is addressing that as well as some confusion about, well, what's going to happen around the time of the day of the Lord? You know, the end time scenario. So much of both First and Second Thessalonians deals with uh, what we might call last times issues. And as I'll point out as we work through the letter, the New Testament pretty much recognizes the last times as being the time between when Jesus ascended into heaven and the time when he comes back. So the church has been in the last times now for 2,000 years. Um, But Paul writes about that. It's interesting that Jesus' return is mentioned in every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians and also in 2 Thessalonians 1 and, and 2. Now, there are several ways you can outline any biblical book, and so there's no inspired outline here. John Stott has one that I liked. Um, He analyzes the book from the standpoint of the gospel and the church. He says that Paul shows how the gospel creates the church and how the church spreads the gospel and how the gospel shapes the church. And he has a very simple, easy-to-remember, five-point outline. Uh, Chapter 1 being Christian evangelism, how the church spreads the gospel. Chapters 2 and 3, down through uh, the end of chapter 3 there, um, Christian ministry, how pastors serve both the gospel and the church. And then chapter 4, down through verse 12, Christian behavior, how the church should live according to the gospel. The rest of 4 and 5, down through uh, chapter 5, verse 11, Christian hope, how the church should inspire or the gospel should inspire the church, and then finally Christian community, how to be a gospel church. I like that outline for its simplicity. Um, My outline goes into a little more detail, and I break it into two basic parts, namely Paul's personal interest in the Thessalonians, and then Paul's practical instructions for them. Uh, So my outline, I put in the notes there, In chapters 1, 2, and 3, Paul's personal interest in the Thessalonians shown by his prayers for them, his past conduct for them, and his present concern for them. Uh, And then in chapters 4 and 5, Paul's practical instructions for the church concerning Christian conduct, concerning deceased Christians, what happens to them, in light of uh, dying before the Lord comes, Uh, instructions about the day of the Lord, and then instructions concerning conduct in the church, and then some detailed instructions in his conclusion. Now again, as I said, it's kind of hard to know how much do I include in this first message, but um, Paul's first sentence after the salutation runs from verse 2 down through the end of verse 5. There's just too much there to cover, so I'm just going to limit ourselves to verses 1 and 2 and develop the theme here that the church that makes an impact consists of people who are transformed by the gospel. Now, there's more that can be said, and we will get into that as we work through chapter 1, but 
for this morning, I just want us to note that, um, note two things. And first of all, the church that makes an impact is a local community of people, people who are described as being in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, and that is through the power of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Verse 1, chapter 1, again, Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church, notice where they lived, of the Thessalonians, so they were in a particular locale, Uh, But they were not only in Thessalonica, also he adds, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And then jumping down to verse 5, first part of the verse there, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit with full conviction. Now, there's something conspicuously absent from that opening greeting, and that is Paul does not mention Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ. You'll find that in every other letter of Paul's except 2 Thessalonians and Philippians. Every other letter of the 13 that we have, uh, knowingly from Paul, he begins by mentioning his apostleship. Apparently, He didn't feel his authority was being threatened in these churches, uh, Thessalonica and Philippi, so he doesn't bring that up. As I said, Silas uh, is a form of Silvanus. Silvanus is a Latin form, same guy. And Timothy probably were founding members of the church with Paul. Uh, They may have had some part in writing this letter and that Paul seems to use the first-person plural pronoun um, very, very frequently through the letter. Uh, One, verse one, or I mean verse two, verse three, verse five, verse six, verse eight, verse nine, and so on. Right on through, he says, we are our, and includes them. So while Paul was probably the main one responsible for the content, perhaps he included them, said, What do you guys think about this? How should I say this? We don't know how the Spirit inspired this letter exactly. Um, Or it may just be that Paul's being courteous and including them because they were there in the founding of the church and had a great part in it. Silas was a Jewish believer. He was a gifted prophet. Um, He was appointed by the apostles in Jerusalem to take... Uh, the directives from the Jerusalem Council back up to the church in Antioch. And Paul later chose Silas to accompany him on his second missionary journey after Paul and Barnabas had a falling out over uh, Mark, who had abandoned them on the first missionary journey. Timothy, as you probably know, was a young man from Lystra, which is in uh, Asia Minor, And he had a Gentile father, he had a Jewish mother who trained him in the ways of God along with his Jewish grandmother. Paul um, treats him like he was a faithful son in the faith to him. He invited him to come with him on some missionary endeavors. Excuse me. He later sent Timothy on some pastoral assignments 
uh, Ephesus and other places. And uh, Luke, interestingly, doesn't mention Timothy in the founding of the church in Thessalonica. Uh, But we know he was with Paul earlier. He was with Paul later. And Paul mentions him in the salutation. And so probably he was there and had a part in bringing the gospel to that city. Paul addresses the letter to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, That word church in its etymology means called out ones, but the word was used widely to refer to various assemblies of people, both secular and religious assemblies. Uh, It's used a few times in the Bible to refer to Israel in the Old Testament. Um, In the New Testament, it has special reference to the one body of Christ that was formed on the day of Pentecost by the Holy Spirit coming on believers in Jesus. And the church is unique in that it consists of both Jew and Gentile believers in equal status before God. In Israel, you know, in the Old Covenant, If you were a Gentile, you had to kind of take a uh, second-tier level in worship. You had to stay out in a court outside of the inner temple and so on. But um, in the New Testament, church can be used in two ways. It can describe all Christians everywhere, the universal church, or, as here, Christians in a particular locale, usually referred to by the city in which they dwell. Um, Mark Dever has a good book called The Church, the Gospel Made Visible. That's a good synopsis of what we are to do as the church. The church, the gospel made visible. And he says this, The church should be regarded as important to Christians because of its importance to Christ. Christ founded the church purchased it with his blood, and intimately identifies himself with it. The church is the body of Christ, the dwelling place of his spirit, the chief instrument for glorifying God in the world. Finally, the church is God's instrument for bringing both the gospel to the nations and a great host of redeemed humanity to himself. Now, there's something distinctive about this greeting where Paul says to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father. Usually, Paul would say to the church of God the Father in Jesus Christ. But here he says to the church in God. Um, Probably we should understand that in the same way as Paul's frequent references to us being in Christ. That when we trust Christ, we are identified completely with him in his death and resurrection. As Jesus said in John 15, we are organically in him as a branch lives in the vine. And the life of the vine flows through the branch to produce fruit. We are in him. Or as we saw in our study of Colossians chapter 3 and verse 3, for you have died And your life is hidden with Christ in God. So that's the sense. 
Also, Paul says, in God the Father. And to know God as Father is a distinctive of New Testament Christianity. If you've never read the book Knowing God, you should read it. It is a classic, J.I. Packer. And uh, in that book, Packer asks this, What is a Christian? And he answers, The question can be answered in many ways, but the richest answer I know is that a Christian is one who has God for his father. And then he adds this, You sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as a knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means he does not understand Christianity very well at all. And so from the very earliest stages of our Christian life, we should understand we have come to know God as our father through the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that means that God loves us and God cares for us far more than any earthly father ever could. He is the best of the best of fathers to us. Now the fact that Paul here, and in Greek there is one preposition, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So the fact that he puts Christ on a par with the Father under this one controlling preposition, uh, shows that already he had taught these brand new believers about the deity of Jesus Christ. Now remember, these people were from Greek pagan backgrounds. They had no idea of who God was. And from Jewish backgrounds, strict monotheists, but he taught them the deity of Jesus. Uh, To call Jesus Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, is to use the Old Testament name of the Lord, Yahweh, applying it it to Jesus. Um, John Stott adds this comment. He says, already within 20 years of the death and resurrection of Jesus, the coupling of the Father and the Son as equal is the universal faith of the church. I'm still getting letters, emails from my Jehovah's Witness friend, if you want to call him a friend, in Georgia, who is trying to convince me of their ways, and I keep writing him back saying, you you aren't saved. He thinks he's saved because he says he's believed in Jesus as Savior and Lord, but it's a different Jesus, of course. So I just keep writing him back saying, you know, you got to believe in Jesus as revealed in Scripture. And clearly, he is God. He is Lord. And then he tries to go off on all kinds of rabbit tails, and I keep writing him back, bringing him back to Jesus. Um, But to distinguish the Father and the Son here shows they are two persons, two equal persons. 
and Lord refers to his deity, Jesus to his humanity, and Christ to his office, that he is the uh, promised anointed deliverer of God's people. And then you say, well, where's the Holy Spirit? Well, keep reading. Down in verses 5 and verse 6, Paul mentions the Holy Spirit, whose power applied the gospel to the hearts of the Thessalonians, and that was evidenced by the fact that they had great joy in the midst of some rather severe persecution. And so, again, it's interesting. Paul doesn't stop here and say, now, let me explain the Trinity to you guys. He assumes they understood it. He's just saying it in passing as he goes through, and... uh, That shows you the depth in which he had taught these people in the very first few weeks he was with them. So now he can write back, refer to the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they all go, yeah, yeah, we get it, and moved on. So uh, they're tracking with him. And then Paul adds grace to you and peace, and grace is a variation of the normal Greek greeting was karine. Grace is charis. And, um, and, of course, God's grace is the foundation for how he deals with us. He has to deal with us in grace because we are all sinners. And we cannot deserve salvation. Grace means undeserved, unmerited favor. And God can show that to us because Christ bore the penalty of our sin on the cross. And so God can be just. The penalty was met in his son Jesus. And he can be gracious in extending mercy to us uh, through Christ when we receive him. It's interesting that in the Old Testament, Moses gets bold and he says, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. You know what the Lord answers? It's in Exodus 33, 19. He says, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I show compassion. And so God is saying, that's who I am, Moses. You want to see my glory? Look at my grace. Look at my grace. Peace was the normal Hebrew greeting, shalom, And we have peace with God because he's gracious to us through the Lord Jesus Christ. It says in Ephesians that Christ broke down that barrier of the dividing wall, the thing that kept the Gentiles out of the inner court. And it says that he abolished the decrees that were hostile toward us, the law of commandments against us. And so the main idea here in chapter 1 is this. The church is not a building. Uh, The church is not an organized religious club that tries to meet the social needs of the community. The church is a local people. They are in a particular locale, and they are in God, the Father, and in the Lord Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. In other words, it is a people transformed by the gospel, Our lives have been changed by the gospel, and so we're distinct from the world. We are united to each other because we are now in this new relationship in God and in Christ. And that leads to the second idea, 
that I only have time for this morning to touch on, and that is that the church that makes an impact is the work of God and not of men. Verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you making mention of you in our prayers. Now, I'll say some more about that verse, Lord willing, next week. But right now, I just want to answer this question. Why does God, uh, Paul give thanks to God? Why doesn't he commend the Thessalonians and say, I'm so thankful you guys made a decision to accept Jesus as your Savior? He doesn't say that. He says, we give thanks to God. Well, we'll see the answer next week in verse 4. Knowing, brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. And so he's thanking God because God chose the Thessalonians for salvation. And then he adds in verse 5 that they are saved through the power of the Holy Spirit. You remember in John 3, when Jesus was talking to the Pharisee Nicodemus, he didn't say, yeah, you're on the right track by keeping the Jewish law, Nicodemus. Just do a little better. No, he said, if you want to see the kingdom of God, you've got to experience the new birth. And the new birth comes through the spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born in the spirit is spirit. And the spirit is like the wind. He moves where he wills. And nobody knows where he is, how he came from, where he goes, but we can see the effects of it. In other words, the new birth is a matter of spiritual birth. And it depends on the sovereign working of God. And that is the consistent teaching all through the Bible and especially in the New Testament. I just have time to read you one text. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, and by the way, Paul pastorally is trying to humble the pride of the Corinthians. They're boasting. I'm of Paul. I'm of Apollos. I am of Christ. And Paul's trying to lay the the field low. So that's the background, the context for these verses. And I want you to notice the word chosen three times here. For consider your calling, brethren. There were not many wise according to the flesh. How does that put them in their place? Not many mighty, not many noble, but God has chosen, there's the first time, the foolish things of the world, that's you guys, you Corinthians, your foolish things, to shame the wise. Here's the second time. God has chosen the weak things of the world, that's all of you, to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. Here it comes again. God has chosen The things that are not. How does that make their self-esteem feel? You guys are a bunch of zeros, okay? That's what not means. Not, not a zilch. God has chosen the things that are zilch in order that he may nullify the things that are, here's why, so that no man may boast before God. But by his doing... You are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, just as it's written, let him who boasts boast in the Lord. I think that's a quote from Jeremiah chapter 17. 
Now, we'll consider that more next week, Lord willing, when we look at verse 4. But right now, I'd like you to ask yourself some questions. Has God changed my heart from unbelief to faith in Jesus Christ? All of us are born unbelievers. We don't believe. If you now believe, it's because God did something in your heart. Another question, has he changed my desires from worldly pursuits to seeking first his kingdom and righteousness, Matthew 6? Has he changed my aim from seeking my glory? Now I seek God's glory. Has he changed my focus from wanting to please myself to now wanting to live to please him? Has he changed me from loving darkness and hating light to loving light and hating darkness? Now again, I realize all of these are lifelong things we grow in, but my point is this. If you have met the Lord, there was a change. God changed your heart. You you can't explain it. You just know, yeah, I used to hate the word, now I love the word. I used to despise those phony Christians. Now I love God's people. There's a change that takes place. So what I'm saying is true Christianity is not a moral improvement project where you get your list of virtues and you set your goals, Ben Franklin style, and you begin to work on moral improvement. No, that's not what it is. It's a matter of moving from death to life, from darkness to light, from blindness to light. And from hardness of heart to now a tender heart to the things of God. That's the new birth. And only God, through the life-giving power of the Holy Spirit, can do that. Got an email this week from a pastor down in uh, Gilbert named Daryl Gustafson. And he wrote this about biblical counselors. He said, counselors across the U.S. say that 75% of those coming for counseling, think they're Christians, but are not converted. That's a staggering figure, and I realize that's not scientific or anything, but they're saying most of the people we counsel with come in the door saying, yeah, yeah, we're, we're Christians, but they aren't. As I think about it, I think it's because of a weak gospel that is being proclaimed. Uh, the gospel in America is often centered on how God can solve your problems. You got a bad marriage? God will help your marriage. Sign up right here. You got financial trouble? God will help your finances. Sign up right here. You got uh, problems in your business? Raising your kids? Whatever it is, the answer's here. Well, all of that is true, but that's not the gospel. It's not the gospel. The gospel, you see, is God has provided a Savior from sin. And you're a sinner. And you can't save yourself. And no matter of moral improvement, uh, no degree of moral improvement will get you in the door. You come to God as a sinner, convicted of your sin, saying, oh God, be merciful to me, the wretched sinner that I am. And he is. Because God delights in mercy, in compassion, in grace. And and you see, it's not, would you like an abundant life? Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, who wouldn't? Sign me up. What do I have to do? Just pray this prayer. And so they pray the prayer, and it's all superficial because the Spirit of God has not done a deep work of conviction of sin and righteousness and judgment. And, and they don't see their lost condition. Oh, man, I am a hopelessly lost sinner. Jesus, have mercy on me. And so the, the conversion is superficial. And I would argue that many churches in America, I hope not here, but many of them are filled with people who think they're going to heaven because they prayed the prayer, but God has never changed their heart. Now, we'll see more of what that means as we work through 1 Thessalonians 1. Uh, The main thing I want to drive home this morning is to get you to think about the question, has God truly changed my heart through believing in the gospel? That I now trust in Jesus Christ as my only hope of eternal life because God did something inside of me. Here's what Paul wrote at the end of 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 5. Test yourselves to see if you're in the faith. Examine yourselves. Or, do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you unless, indeed, you fail the test? And so if we want to make an impact in this city, I believe that we really need to make sure we all are born again, that God has changed our, our hearts and our lives, and will be distinct then from those around us, so that they're going to be going, there's something different about you. And that's, of course, when we tell them how our life has been transformed by the greatest news there is, Christ Jesus came into this world to save sinners. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I confess my life doesn't seem to make the impact I would like on my neighbors and friends and people in this community. And I long for more conversions in this church, through this church, in this city, so that if you took us out of the way, people would truly miss the people of this church. Lord, I pray that none in this church would just be churchgoers who have not experienced the new birth, that you would convict any who are self-righteous of sin and of your righteousness and of the judgment to come and drive them to the only solution you've provided, that you sent your Son to the cross to bear our sin and that you offer eternal life as a free gift to all who believe. So we ask you to do that in our midst and that the gospel would be mighty and powerful in this church. In Jesus' name, amen.